Welcome to the Apple for the Teacher podcast, the true crime podcast that features the good apples and the bad apples within the school system. My name is Anna Thomas, a teacher and your host. So join me as I present school stories that are tragic, shocking, unbelievable and outright bizarre. Welcome everyone. Here we are at episode 35. For those of you new to the podcast, it tells true crime stories related to schools. You will hear stories about crimes perpetrated against people in schools, but also crimes committed by people within the school system. So far, we have heard stories about murder, suicide, bullying, hijack, kidnap and ransom, people murdered and buried in school grounds, sexual abuse, student disappearance, school camp deaths, and suicide bombing, just to name a few. I'm a teacher myself, and I also offer my own insights into the stories presented. So welcome, everyone. Let's now say hello to the people in our Facebook group. Hello to Brittany Michelle, Dana Biggs, Cheryl Dider, and Bill Kelly. So come and join us in the group. Everyone is so nice. I've been in many true crime groups, and I can't believe some of the behaviour but everyone is just so well behaved in our group. I don't know if it's because I'm a teacher and they're all watching their P's and Q's. I mean, it's not like I have threatened them with detention or something, so we'd love to see more of you. I always provide a preview of each episode before it comes out and also photos and videos about the stories. I'd also like to say hello to another Facebook group member who sounds like she's French and I'm going to try to pronounce her name although I know the French language isn't phonetic and how you pronounce words is not necessarily how they look. So no doubt I will get it totally wrong, but here goes. Her name is Alieur Chemoy. She asked me a question in the Facebook group, which I will answer here. She asked, Thank you, Mrs. Thomas, for this unique podcast. Like some others, I binge the episodes. I just love it. I have a question. Are you still teaching? And if so, how do you find the time to produce a podcast? You have my admiration. Thank you so much for that. I love how she calls me Mrs. Thomas. So formal, just like she's addressing a real teacher. Well, I am, but it just sounds funny coming from an adult instead of a child. But I think it shows that she holds teachers in high regard. So here is my response. I'll just read exactly what I wrote in the Facebook group. Yes, I am still teaching, and yes, I don't even know how I manage to bring out an episode each week, but I guess when you love doing something, you find the time. I think teachers are naturally very well prepared and organised, and when I get the time, I will work away furiously until it's finished. I don't tend to stop and start or work over a number of days. Once I get my teeth into a story, I sort of get really obsessed with it. Yes, you might call that OCD, obsessive compulsive disorder. And as teachers, we often joke that we've got OCD because running a classroom requires routine and being very organized. So thank you for your question. And also here are a couple of iTunes reviews of the podcast. The first one says, love it. I love your voice and your inclusion of good apples. Thank you for your stories and the great research that obviously goes into the podcast. And that's from Hopscotch88. Thank you for that. And another one says, Bell, I love the podcast, but listening to the bell is horrible. 
Now, Rosetta, I get it. It is quite grating, but that's exactly how my school bell sounds. We have various bell speakers around the school and there's one right outside my room. And if I'm standing outside, it will make me jump every single time. So what I'm going to do is lower the volume of the bell in the podcast. So hopefully it won't sound so ear grating. So thank you everyone for those lovely reviews. We're now going to go on to our country of focus. My country stats show people are listening in Chile. So Chile will be our country of focus today. Or as I've heard it pronounced before, Chile. So Chile or Chile. In Chile, there is a swimming pool which was named by the Guinness Book of Records as the largest swimming pool in the world with a length of 1,000 yards and an area of 20 acres and 115 feet deep. It took five years to construct and has an annual maintenance cost of 2 million US dollars. Wow. And here's an interesting cultural tradition. Let's say you're moving house. You would pack up all your gear and transport your possessions to your new home. But in Chile, there is an island called Minga, where when people want to move house, they literally move their house. The community will get together and remove the house from its foundation and a team of oxen and logs will pull the house to its new location or it will be tied to a boat and floated to its new location. Isn't that interesting? Now, we all know that Egypt is well known for its mummies, but actually the world's oldest known mummies were found in Chile. And finally, the world's most powerful earthquake happened in Chile in 1960. It had a magnitude of 9.5 on the Richter scale, lasted for 11 minutes and killed at least 6,000 people. So hello to everyone in Chile. All right, let's get into the story. Here's a preview of the Bad Apple story today. It's called The Rabbit Hole. A crime is committed with multiple suspects. So who was responsible? This story today is a very complicated and intriguing case. A crime is committed and there is much contradictory information. The case takes many twists and turns and I suggest that you be prepared to take in a lot of details. So perhaps get the kids out of the room, send hubby on an errand for bread and milk and if you're at work, put a sign on the door saying do not disturb. I will present you with the information and you can draw your own conclusions. For this story, we go to Pennsylvania in the US to a small city named Aliquippa. On February the 6th, 2016, at around 2am in the morning, two police officers noticed a car in an abandoned parking lot. The windows on the car were fogged up. In the car were two people. One of the occupants was Rachel Del Tondo, who was a 30-year-old elementary teacher. And also in the car was a 17-year-old boy named Sheldon Jeter who went to the Aliquippa Senior High School. They had known each other for a number of years and first met when she worked as a substitute teacher at his elementary school. When questioned by the police, they said they were friends and just talking. But Rachel urged the police not to tell her fiancé as he would be mad. 
no charges were laid and no police report was made. Soon after the incident, Rachel confided in her friend Jen about what had happened that night in the car. She said the boy had contacted her on Facebook saying he needed someone to talk to. So she said they met at the Circle K and just talked. Now, I had to look this up as I didn't know what Circle K was, but it's a chain of convenience stores. Jen came right out and asked if she had had sexual relations with the boy, and Rachel said no. Although Jen didn't say it to her at the time, she didn't believe Rachel's story. At the time that Rachel and Sheldon had been in the car, Rachel had been engaged to a man named Frank Katropa. Rachel and Frank had been together for eight years and had set their wedding date. Frank was a very successful businessman and his father was a former police officer in the town where they lived. Their relationship was described as on and off. Rachel was keen to get married and have kids, but Frank wasn't ready for a commitment. She had pressured him a number of times and set many deadlines for the wedding. But finally, After five years together, they went to Paris and got engaged. The relationship between Frank and Rachel's parents gradually became estranged. Frank was keen to be involved in all of the decision-making regarding the wedding, and her parents saw him as being very controlling. Rachel still lived with her parents, and Frank felt that they were too involved in her life and meddled in their relationship. Frank asked for a prenup, but Rachel refused, which Frank believed was influenced by her parents. This put a strain on the relationship, and eventually the engagement was called off, but the couple continued to see each other on and off. About a year after the incident in the car, Frank, Rachel and Jen attended a birthday party. Jen hadn't seen Rachel for a while, and she noticed that Rachel looked very different from the last time that she saw her. Jen thought she was taking drugs. She asked her about this, but Rachel denied it. They then discussed the incident in the car with the 17-year-old boy Sheldon, and a heated argument began. Jen said she believed Rachel did have a relationship with the boy and that Frank should know. So she told Frank, but Rachel said the whole incident was innocent and Frank believed her. Rachel accused Jen of starting vicious rumours, and after that, her and Frank wanted nothing more to do with Jen. Another year had passed, and Frank was curious about what had happened with Rachel and the boy. So he decided to go to the police department and ask if there was an incident report. He spoke with Assistant Police Chief Joe Percival, who said that actually he had a copy of the report right there on his desk. However, The incident had occurred a year earlier, and when asked why it was there on the desk, his reply was, quote, I just put it there just in case somebody came. Now that sounds very curious to me. Given a year had passed, and there would have been so many incident reports made in that time, what are the chances that the report that Frank wanted just happened to be within easy reach? And even more curious was that the report had been written a year after the event. When asked why, he said he had only found out about it months earlier. 
And given the fact that it happened so late and that the boy was 17, the police officer felt a report needed to be done and instructed the officers involved to write the report. However, he refused to give the report to Frank as a formal request needed to be made. So he consulted the police chief who said it was okay to give it to Frank. His exact words were, why not? It's Frankie. So it appears that perhaps Frank and the police chief knew each other. And also you will recall that Frank's father was a former police officer. But the chief refutes this story, saying he said Frank needed to go through the proper procedure to access the report. So there's obviously some contradictions here. Whatever the case, Frank was able to see the report and was able to take it with him. The report contradicted what Rachel had said. She said it was about 11pm and that they were at the Circle K parking lot. However, the report said it was 2am and that they were found at an abandoned lot. It also said the passenger seat was reclined back. The police officer who gave Frank the report said he looked visibly upset with tears in his eyes. Now, what happened next was also very curious. Just days after Frank's visit to the police, the entire contents of the report was emailed and texted to Rachel's school, the media, the mayor, and even her friend Jen. Jen said she had no idea who sent her the message. Rachel's parents, not surprisingly, blamed Frank, who flatly denied doing it. He openly admitted showing it to people he knew, asking if anyone knew about what had happened that night. It was never discovered how the report had been leaked, but some believed if it wasn't actually Frank himself, that he may have given it to somebody else. A day after the report was leaked, Rachel was suspended from her teaching job. She then cut all ties with Frank. She became unwell, couldn't eat and sleep, and was admitted to a psych ward for a short time. Now we will be introduced to another person who is part of this already intriguing tale. Rachel's relationship with Frank was over, and she then became involved with another man, 31-year-old Rashawn Bolton. He was the older half-brother of Sheldon. Rachel's parents knew about the relationship and said that Rachel felt safe with Rashawn. He said he was in a serious relationship with Rachel. He recounted an incident that had occurred outside his home where he was with Rachel. His half-brother Sheldon arrived and there was an altercation. Rashawn stated that Sheldon said the following, That expletive told me she was with Amy and then added, if my brother wasn't here, I'd expletive you up. So he was obviously using offensive language and was referring to Rachel, saying that she had told him she was with another female friend, when actually he found her with his half-brother. So Sheldon was saying that he would have hurt Rachel if his brother hadn't have been there. Now I will introduce you to another of Rachel's friends. Lauren Watkins was a 17-year-old former student who had developed a very strong relationship with Rachel. She said Rachel helped her with so many things and was very kind and caring. 
They would spend time together, listen to music, and just talk as friends do. However, Rachel's parents questioned her friendship with such a young girl. But Rachel would say she needed her help and she didn't want to hurt her feelings. So we have seen so far that Rachel seemed to have a very young group of friends, seeing as she was 30 years old and a teacher, which would appear to be quite unusual and perhaps to some as inappropriate. Or was she just a very caring person who really wanted to help people? Following the leaking of the police report about her night in the car with 17-year-old Sheldon, Rachel became increasingly suspicious of the police and believed that they were watching her and following her. She had told her parents that she knew information about corruption within the police force. Rachel had been cooperating in an ongoing investigation by the Pennsylvania State Police into alleged corruption in the Aliquippa Police Department. She said she was afraid of the police and had also received death threats. Her mother phoned a crime tip line reporting what her daughter had told her. Rachel was put in touch with a man called John Paul. He said he spoke to Rachel a number of times on the phone and she provided him with the information she had. She stated that she had received a text that she would not live to see the end of 2018. However, he stated that she was unable to provide any proof of her allegations. Rachel also accused Frank of having something to do with these incidents, which he denied, saying, quote, No, that's ridiculous. It's just Rachel. Like, she says things and they're not exactly true. Maybe just trying to discredit me. And I think there was a part of her too that was just upset that we never got married. So she kind of wanted to kind of paint me in a bad light at times. End quote. Although Rachel didn't elaborate, she mentioned that she had information about Frank in regards to police corruption in Aliquippa. Frank responded to this by saying, quote, I don't know what she could possibly tell them. How could I do corruption? I'm not a city official. I'm not a government official. I'm not a police officer, end quote. So my question here is, what ties did Rachel have with the police that could have given her knowledge of police corruption? She was just an ordinary person like you or I. The only connection that I can see is that her fiancé, Frank's father, was a former police officer. Did Frank perhaps tell her information that his father told him when they were still together and when their relationship was in a good place? Frank was a very successful and wealthy businessman. So did he pay off police in some way? Was he involved in shady business deals? Then perhaps their relationship turned sour and she decided to reveal what she knew. Before we go on, let's have a break so that you can take in all of that information with a podcast recommendation from one of my fellow Australian podcasts called Bloody Murder. So here are Barney and Tara. So take a listen. Is listening to true crime podcasts all the time getting you down, but you just can't stop? Try listening to Bloody Murder. We're an Australian comedy true crime podcast focusing on some of the lesser-known murder cases from Australia and around the globe. 
We use black comedy as a means to tell horrifying true crime stories. But our humour is respectful and never at the expense of victims or their loved ones. Our episodes cover everything from Australian gangland figures like Chopper Reed to black widows and women who kill disputes between neighbours that turn to murder identity theft killings bushrangers and serial killers you won't have heard covered elsewhere. We get straight into the case with no banter or chit-chat beforehand. That's because the podcast is about true crime, not what we had for lunch. Our fresh, well-researched episodes are released every Monday. Bloody Murder has been nominated for four Australian Podcast Awards. We've been going for over three years now. So we have loads of episodes for you to binge. You can listen to Bloody Murder on Spotify and any of your favourite podcatchers. On the night of Mother's Day 2008, Rachel had supper at home and then made arrangements to go out with her friend Lauren Watkins. Lauren picked up Rachel at 8pm and they went to another friend's house. While they were driving, they saw Sheldon in another car with a group of people. Lauren then got a message from Sheldon on Facebook and he asked if they had just passed each other. Lauren replied yes. And he then asked, what are you doing? But Lauren didn't message him back. They then decided to go out for ice cream, but first went back to Rachel's house so that she could change clothes. Rachel told her parents she was going for ice cream. They then left Rachel's house and picked up another friend. His name was Tyree Jeter. He was 26 years old and he was the older half-brother of Sheldon the boy that Rachel had been in the car with that night. So now we have met two half-brothers of Sheldon, the other one being Rashawn, who she was in a relationship with. They arrived at the ice cream place and then Tyree got a message from his brother Sheldon. Sheldon asked if the group was already there and Tyree replied yes. Sheldon then texted back, I got left, huh? followed by six smiley faces. Sheldon then asked him who he was with, but Tyree did not respond. At 10.45pm, Laura dropped Rachel home and said that she would drop Tyree home and then come back. Rachel was in the driveway of her house when suddenly she was shot at close range 10 times and sadly died at the scene. Lauren's account was that she dropped her off and waited until Rachel had reached the side door to her house and then drove off. Lauren says, quote, I don't leave until anyone gets to their door, especially her. I always check my surroundings with her. There was nothing unusual, no unusual car, no person anywhere in sight, end quote. However, Rachel was found at the foot of the driveway, not at the side door. It's interesting how she said that she checks the surroundings, especially with Rachel. Why does she have the need to be so protective of her? It seems that she does know something about what's going on and that Rachel is in some sort of danger. Police began the investigation into Rachel's death and here is where the plot thickens. A police officer had to be taken off the case as he was Lauren's father. He was put on leave due to his daughter's crucial role as an eyewitness in the investigation. And he was also one of the police officers who found Rachel and Sheldon in the car that night. Sheldon was the first to be interviewed. 
he denied having anything to do with her death, saying that they were still friends. According to Sheldon's attorney, he said that his client claimed that Rachel had never been his teacher and that their relationship was more than just friends and that it had been going on for some time. But Rachel's parents disputed this, saying they had a very close relationship with their daughter and she would have told them. They believed he had mistaken Rachel's kindness for love and that he had an obsession with her. They claimed that one night he came to their house drunk and started banging on the windows. Sheldon denied this claim. Following their daughter's murder, her parents suspected Sheldon straight away. His phone was searched by police, showing the details of his actions that night, as I have already outlined. The police report indicated that Sheldon displayed no emotion when told of Rachel's death. His attorney refutes this, saying that Sheldon was in total shock. But then again, the police were there, the attorney was not, so how would he know that? The police also obtained a warrant to search Sheldon's house, but found nothing of interest. Rachel's friend Lauren was also questioned and said that she did not know that Rachel and Sheldon had been in a relationship. Rachel had never mentioned Sheldon being obsessed with her or wanting to be with her. Rachel's ex-fiancé Frank was also questioned and denied that he had anything to do with her death. He apparently had an alibi that he was with his current girlfriend and that there was video footage to back this up. He stated, quote, She was a good girl. She had a big heart. Definitely don't understand why or how someone could do something like this to her. It's a tragedy. Nobody deserves that. She does deserve justice. Frank was receiving a lot of calls and media attention and decided to hold a press conference with his lawyer a few days after Rachel's death. Here is an audio clip of what he had to say. Now, I'd like you to listen carefully and decide how he comes across in the audio. As we have seen with many true crime cases, there have been interviews with people who have claimed innocence in the murder of someone, but it comes out later that they did commit the crime. So listen here to Frank and see what you think. When you're with somebody for eight years, that's quite some time. And you just hope to see that they at least get, get justice to this. And, you know, it's a, it's a sad, sad case. This was only a small part of the interviews that he gave. And I noticed that he only used Rachel's actual name only a few times, using she and her most of the time. His comments seemed to have been made by someone who was just commenting on the case, not someone who knew her and knew her intimately as they were going to get married. His comments just seemed to be very distant to me. It was just very strange the way that he was talking about Rachel, this person that he had known for eight years. The whole, his whole demeanor was very, very distant. And that's how I felt about it. There was also a hint of being quite measured and a lack of emotion. It was quite matter of fact, the way that he was speaking. Someone he was going to marry is murdered, but there seems to be a lack of emotion. The murder was only days old. He didn't seem to be acting though. How many times have we seen someone break down crying at someone's murder only to be found to be the murderer? So although I tended to believe him, it really was the lack of emotion that I questioned. 
Some people who are suspects in a murder may lay low and not respond to media requests. Is this because they have something to hide or is it the advice of their lawyer? However, Frank came out voluntarily only after a few days after the murder. So did he want to jump the gun to come across as though he had nothing to hide? Did he do it to make himself look good? The curious thing for me is why did Frank wait a whole year before wanting the report of the night that Rachel had been found in the car? So what had happened in that year that suddenly prompted him to want to see the report? And then somehow, miraculously, the report appears on the desk, only having been written a short time earlier. Very curious. It was then leaked and it discredited Rachel. And what about the discrepancies in the time? Rachel said it was 11pm. The police report said 2am. So did they falsify the report to make her look worse? Did Frank pay them to falsify the report? And did he use his wealth to hire a hitman to kill her? It seems clear that she knew something. So in my amateur sleuth opinion, I believe Frank was involved and the 17-year-old boy was just someone to put the spotlight on and shift the blame to. And Lauren and the half-brothers just helped to complicate the murder and it helped to shift some of the spotlight off Frank. While I was researching this story, I came across a fascinating article that analysed the interview that Frank gave, pulling apart every word to determine if he was telling the truth or lying. The article was written by a lady named Ursula Franco, who is an MD and a criminologist. The conclusion that she made is that Frank was being deceptive. She explained that if Frank was going to make a reliable denial, he would need to state the following. He would have to use the pronoun I and use the verb did not or didn't. He would also have to directly answer the accusation if he was involved in Rachel's death. Someone who is telling the truth will answer with a direct no and will not go into further details to try to persuade. However, this is exactly what Frank did. He used the phrase absolutely not a number of times and also said would never do that instead of didn't. So she concluded that Frank didn't directly deny his involvement in Rachel's murder. I just find this so fascinating. But then again, is it just word semantics? Should we be picking apart a person's every word to determine if they are guilty or innocent? And also, it is this one person's opinion. Nevertheless, I just thought it was really interesting how she pulled apart all the words that he was using. I will put a link to this article in our Facebook group, plus other videos for you to watch. So she confirmed to me, although at first I tended to believe him, the more I watched the video, the more dubious I became. And then I found her article. So it just seemed to me to back up how I was feeling. Now, you might think that the plot in this case could not thicken more, but yes, it does. About a month after Rachel's murder, the police department had three different police chiefs in one week. The police chief who had been there when Frank requested the police report of the car incident was put on leave with the reasons not made public, but it was believed to be for personal reasons and had nothing to do with the case. The assistant chief who gave Frank the report replaced the chief who was put on leave. He was then arrested because he had sent 
an obscene text message to a minor. And that minor just happened to be Lauren, Rachel's friend who was the last person to see her alive. Shall I pause here for you to take all of this in? He stated that the message was sent to the wrong person. But even though it supposedly went to the wrong person, he obviously had her phone number in his phone. Why would he have the phone number of a 17-year-old girl? So to me, you know what, he's totally guilty and he's trying to cover his tracks, but you know what, it's a really, really pathetic excuse. Then the third chief was appointed, who decided it was best for the murder investigation to be taken over by another department. So then the Beaver County Detectives Bureau took over the investigation. Lauren Watkins had been interviewed by the CBS TV show 48 Hours, which covers true crime cases. They also have a podcast, which I am a frequent listener of. When Lauren was questioned, this is part of what she said, which left me very curious. On the night of Rachel's death, when she was with Lauren... Lauren said she sent a text message to Rachel even though she was sitting in the car with her right behind her. The police had searched the phones of the people at the centre of this case and it showed that Lauren's text to Rachel said, quote, go for a walk, I will pick you up later. And then minutes later, Rachel was dead. When asked about this, Lauren explained this as follows, quote, it was one of those things like kind of trying to get rid of, not necessarily get rid of Ty, for whatever her and I had planned for in the evening. Like he could just go and it would be just our time together to talk and gossip and stuff like that. And I was like, well, I don't want him to hear. So I just kind of sent the message to her. I don't know. Just go for a walk. I don't know. End quote. She was asked directly, did you know about what had happened to Rachel? And she replied, I did not. So she seems to tell Rachel to go for a walk. She gets dropped off at her house. Lauren takes Tyree home, intending to come back, but she's dead within a few minutes. Could this just be a coincidence? Or was Lauren involved? And did she intentionally drop her off knowing she would be ambushed? And remember, her father was a policeman, is that also a coincidence? But everyone, the plot continues to thicken. The next part of this saga involves a man serving time in prison who received a letter from someone outside the prison. The contents of the letter allegedly stated that a police officer was responsible for the murder of Rachel. The Beaver County District Attorney, David Lozier, would not reveal the writer of the letter and was not able to elaborate on whether the letter stated the name of the police officer who allegedly murdered Rachel. The prisoner was in jail for assault and robbery charges and was offered a plea deal in exchange for testimony about the letter. He agreed to the deal, meaning he pleaded guilty to lesser charges. The arresting officer in the prisoner's case was Kenneth Watkins, and he was the father of Lauren Watkins, and you will also remember that he was put on administrative leave after Rachel's murder. So here are my thoughts. There is no doubt in my mind that she was having a sexual relationship with Sheldon. Whether it was 11pm or 2am in the morning, there seems to be little doubt in my mind. 
If she had been with him during the day in a public place, maybe in a shopping centre car park, then yes, you would say that they were two friends talking, although still inappropriate given her age difference and that she was a teacher. If the meeting was about an issue that Sheldon was having, was he in trouble with the police maybe? Was that somehow tied in with what she knew about police corruption? There seems to be a number of love interests in this case, which leads one to surmise that Rachel's death was a result of her personal life and a crime of passion. Was Sheldon jealous that his half-brother, Rashawn, was seeing Rachel? Rashawn alleges that Sheldon threatened Rachel. But then there is the other angle where she seems to have had information about police corruption. So was this the reason for the murder? Or was it a combination of both? It's such a tangled web, and in fact, I had to draw myself a map to get a visual picture of all the people involved and how they were connected to each other. When I first started reading the story, it started out as a clear-cut case of a love triangle, actually more like a square, and then it descended into more and more rabbit holes. The latest information on Rachel's murder was in May 2019, which is 10 months ago. Another story that I will be keenly following, and I will let you know if I find out anything. As intriguing as it is, we need to remember that it's a story about a lady whose life was so tragically cut short, whether it was because of her love choices or police corruption or both. Nobody deserves to have their life ended in that way. I really hope whoever is responsible is brought to justice. Before we finish, I'd like to let you know that you can leave a voice message for the podcast. This is a great feature of my podcast host where you can record a message up to the length of one minute and then I can put your message directly into an episode for everyone to hear. Wherever you listen to the podcast, when you click to play an episode, you will see the episode description and just scroll down where there is a link called send a message. I would love to be able to play your messages in each episode, so don't be shy. Say hello, tell us where you're from, or whatever else you'd like to say. It would be great if this could be a regular part of the podcast. I tried it myself by sending myself a message. Just record into your phone and click send. And also, leaving a voice message is free. It's not like making a phone call. It's actually free. It doesn't cost anything, so why not give it a go? So I look forward to hearing your messages. Now I'd like to give you a preview of the next episode. Episode 36, it's called Schoolhouse. Here's a summary. The village had a one-room schoolhouse and the teacher slept on a bed in the corner of the room. Why? So to end this episode, I will leave you with this quote. If you are not willing to learn, no one can help you. If you are determined to learn, no one can stop you. Bye for now, and remember to be a good apple.